Great. We're glad to glad to be in the booth at Fintech Collective today on uh, Union Square. Very pleased to have Sean LaPel for a chat on DeFi. Sean, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here in the booth. Sean, let's wind, wind the clock back. You spent uh, some time as an entrepreneur. You spent some time in institutional finance. But I think your um, relationship with cryptocurrency started before that. That's exactly right. Do you want to tell the story? Or, or no, you, you <laughs> go for it. Uh, yeah, so actually I used to be a ranked online poker player. There was a point in my career, if you want to call it that, where I was top 10 in the world. Um, so for a long time, poker players were probably uh, the first people to start interacting with the world of cryptocurrency. We really started using it um, sort of to send money between ourselves. Um, little known fact, but most poker players are backed by other people. We were running a platform uh, to sort of equity crowdfund or back other poker players. We're using a unique set of data and analytics to do that. Uh, we were backing poker players, we were sending them their funds via Bitcoin. And at the point, I really hadn't dug underneath the hood to really fully understand what that meant. All I knew is that you could uh, send money uh, over the internet in a seamless fashion. That's amazing. In any country? Any country, globally, globally borderless. That's very, very cool. Uh, little did you know then that uh, almost 10 years hence, you'd be putting money to work uh, under a thesis at a, at a venture capital firm. <laughs> <laughs> it's come um, full circle. It has come full circle. Like foundationally, Sean, how do you define DeFi? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so at, at sort of the broadest definition, decentralized finance or DeFi uh, in short, uh, is network-based finance that's being built on top of public permissionless uh, distributed ledger technology. Um, and I think, to your point, it's really important to zoom out and to think about our thesis in this space. Uh, you alluded to sort of this transformation and movement from industrial era finance into the world of network-based finance, which we think will take place over, uh, started to take place, but really will, will culminate over the next few decades. Um, so just defining what industrial era finance is, uh, industrial era finance is probably the finance that most people listening to this podcast or video know. It's intermediated finance, right? You have large financial institutions, you have regulators, you have law firms that sort of serve as the source of truth. Um, DeFi sort of flips that paradigm, um, and really the source of truth in DeFi is sort of the code, uh, uh, the code itself, the code and software itself, right? So a huge paradigm shift. Um, People it's, talk about prog programmable money, right? When people talk even simplistically about blockchain, Bitcoin. Um, so taking this notion of the, the essence of this system is the code itself. Um, unpack what, the, what you see as sort of the key features of DeFi. Absolutely, it's a, it's a good question. Um, the first, I would say, is definitively transparency. Um, the, the world of industrial finance uh, tends to be opaque. Um, and we talk about, as a firm, a whole lot about- A lot know, of money has been made on that opacity. That uh, definitely, a lot of people <laughs> have made a lot of money. There's still money to be made, even in the DeFi world. Um, but we think about just foundational things, like going back to the financial crisis, exactly when I started my career uh, in financial services, it was right when Lehman Brothers collapsed, right? 
And to think, you know, the amount of risk that Lehman had across the street, the amount of counterparties they had, like, you know, exactly what was each firm's exposure and corporates had a ton of exposure to Lehman as well. It sort of served as a counterparty in their trades. But the market really didn't have a good understanding of what exactly that risk was, how much yeah. was it. Um, the great thing about DeFi and what's going on on public permissionless chains is that sort of all activity that's occurring on a blockchain is viewable for everyone. You could trace transactions from where they started to where they ended. Um, so transparency is a huge thing. It's exactly what the regulators are looking for. Uh, so bringing transparency is, is, is quite foundational. Um, the second I would say is, you know, the software that we're talking about that's programmable is, is largely open source. Um, so the code is out there. Uh, it potentially can be forked. Um, so when we think about sort of, you know, the open source nature of this, it enables a lot of new functionality and sort of larger and faster innovation cycles. Um, when we think about software being being out there, sort of the core financial primitives or base level protocols that can be built upon are available for all developers to sort of work on. Um, so we've seen sort of breakneck speed of development in the DeFi space as a result of this. I mean, we've, you know, as a fund in traditional fintech, funded a lot of companies that have helped sort of solve for this foundational infrastructure, whether it's Quovo or Plaid. Um, the fact that these base level protocols in DeFi already exist and are out there has sort of allowed um, the sort of DeFi ecosystem to, to flourish in a way that it's taken just longer for traditional fintech to occur. Um, uh, I would also talk about the programmability of it and really actually define what that means. Yeah, what, um, what does programmability mean yeah, and, and for whom? Exactly. And I think you'll hear the word thrown around a lot, especially when it comes to blockchain and things that are built in Ethereum is this concept of a smart contract. Yeah. And like, what, what is a smart contract? It, it seems sounds, like the solution to everything. It seems like the solution to everything. It seems like a, a great word, but it's really nothing too crazy. It's just, you know, a contract that's encapsulated in code. Uh, it's taking a long contract and putting it in software, right? So if X occurs, then Y occurs, right? It seems pretty simple, but a lot of things you know, there's some gap in between an event happening, something else happening, it's not guaranteed. So this idea of self-executing code that's encapsulated in smart contracts is uh, extremely important to the functioning of everything that's going on in DeFi. I uh, think some of the complexity on that, just hitting pause for a second, some of the complexity in um, what is otherwise the simplistic version of self-executing code is that that becomes a lot more difficult when you have uh, two counterparties. Right. And you might have two parties within the same institution. Um, but when you start to get two counterparties that are in different institutions, that becomes more complex. When you start to think about a lot of the transactions in finance, the terms of those transactions are actually written in documents. They're yeah. not necessarily even machine readable. Um, I think one of the other super interesting things about this uh, notion of a smart contract or self-executing agreement between two counterparties who, I know you're going to get into this, may or may not even know each other yep. or may not have some other basis of trusting each other is the notion of a self-adjudicating contract. So how are disputes handled? What is the source of truth? Um, I think these are all more nuanced aspects of um, what people otherwise are simplistically sort of thinking of as a, a smart contract. No, absolutely. I, th I think that's right. And when we really just think about all those features combined, like what, what's the impact in developed markets? You alluded to a bit of it of, you know, 
solving uh, disputes between two transactions in a, in a bilateral contract uh, obviously makes that much more simple or how much time is spent in a law firm or in the courts to solve that. But really, we think about sort of opening up of different types of experiences um, for, for users in developed markets. Um, you know, so giving greater choice, like the idea that I could be my own bank. Uh, it's only a concept that really exists in DeFi, right? Like you park your money in a bank over a chase, you know, the assumption is like your money is sitting in that ledger, it's there for you, right? Uh, that's really not how it exists. Like the bank goes out and levers that 10 times. Um, there's a lot of risk inherent in that. Uh, but actually owning your keys to your money the way you could in DeFi is is quite innovative, right? And, and a concept that in traditional finance, like, can't exist, right? So well, so first principles in a financial system is often someone taking deposits and then lending that money out to others. And so one of the use cases that seems to be um, most easily understood in the DeFi space is this notion that you might uh, exchange fiat or US dollars for a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin or Ethereum, be holding that be speculating on the price movement of that, but then also be lending that cryptocurrency, that Bitcoin or Ethereum out to other people <laughs> and be getting yield on that. Yep. Is that an application that's possible today? You, you nailed it. Um, it's an application I'm super excited about. It's, it's still nascent uh, in its product development, but this idea of sort of smart contract enabled money markets or smart contract enabled repo markets um, and the co the protocol you're talking about it's actually a protocol called compound which really enables this seamless borrowing and lending of digital firsts or cryptocurrencies um, so this idea that i could actually hold my bitcoin or my ethereum um, i could remain keep my sovereignty over it but go out and get a five to seven percent yield like once again a new experience that's being enabled for people's or people are holding a large stack of cryptocurrencies um, how it exists today, it's definitely digital first assets, but to your point, you can imagine a whole swath of other areas, the capital markets and other securities being re-platformed on a blockchain, uh, being used in this programmatic format for, for repo markets. And you know, the repo markets exist today, they're foundational, they're extremely big, they measure in the trillions, um, they require you to actually put your uh, uh, collateral with an uh, intermediary who you're trusting that they remain solvent as they hold it. There has to be a better way. Um, DeFi reinvents that and says, okay, like, I don't fully trust you. I don't know who you are. Let's park in a smart contract. We know how the code actually works behind this, how it's going to adjudicate. So let's put it in that. We know the rules behind it, like what LTV will liquidate my position. Uh, and I'll be it, you know, I could lend you my cryptocurrency and you could pay me a 5% to 7% yield. Uh, and that could be guaranteed uh, through this uh, radical source of truth called the blockchain. So that's exactly a great, a great use case that uh, is getting a lot of traction today. So, so a lot of conversation ends up um, coming back to this notion of trust in different forms, right? So do you trust an institution in uh, IRL in real life um, that you might be parking your capital at? And um, another form of trust is being able to transact with someone who is interested in transacting with you, but you may not have an alternative existing relationship with. But when referencing the repo markets and then talking about DeFi, you're referencing that there must be a better way and that do you trust this institution that you've parked your money with? Just to play devil's advocate and, and poke on that a little bit. Sure. 
those system those those markets seem to work pretty well today, mm-hmm. and there seems to be um, an inherently high level of trust in the existing institutional financial system. What do you mean specifically when you say there must be a better way? So it it does work uh, as intended today. Um, there. Are, definitely is long tail risks to a lot of that. We highlighted one and thinking about this example of Lehman. Um, but I don't think anyone when they enter into sort of a, a repo transaction really loves the idea of handing over their collateral. It's the way the system works and it's you know historically how it's worked. Um, I don't think it's actually necessary. But besides that, if you think about sort of the, the tracking of costs related to that, um, there's a lot of companies that track sort of loan to value. Um, there's a ton of intermediaries that uh, make a lot of money off that. Uh, if that could be encapsulated in code, you can imagine cutting a whole lot of fat right out of the system, a whole lot of uh, post-trade settlement, reconciliation, admin costs out of the system. So I'd say it works as in- intended today. I would say it's still probably too opaque and probably it's probably a little too over collateralized than it would actually need to be right. if we were leveraging something around right. smart contracts. And I think plenty of bank CEOs might make the argument and agree with your statement <laughs> that they're over collateralized for the risk that they're taking. But um, when put against stress and without having a high fidelity way to in real time assess risk, the tools that end up getting put in place are somewhat blunt instruments. That's out to your right. Um, are there other are there other protocols, um, which is what a lot of these things are called? Yeah. Uh, we'll, we can unpack that later. Um, but are there other protocols that you're excited about? No, definitely. While well, say there, the market's nascent. There's about five to ten protocols that I would qualify as gaining some amount of product market fit. Right? There's real capital committed to them. Uh, the smart contracts have been battle tested in some way. They've been, to your point, of stress tests in normal financial markets. There's been, you know, price movements and volatility in the normal cryptocurrency markets, and that's uh, tends to be some of the criticism around it. But um, a lot of these contracts have performed according to contract design. Um, so one that I'm very excited about is a is a company called Uniswap, um, and this idea of real time. Uh, clearing and settlement and trading of digital first tokens. And I would say, you know, a lot of people use this term non-custodial or keeping custody. And we referenced it with keeping control of your 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 money, but it really is, you know, open custody and trading in an open custodial model. So I could choose like whether I want to keep the keys and trade for my own wallet. I might be a big institution that says, hmm, I'm not really familiar with sort of the security procedures of how to hold this new thing. I'm going to give it to my normal State Street or an investment we made in a company called NYDIG that's doing this and has all the requisite licenses. So maybe you're an institution that trades um, from your your qualified custodian or you're an individual that trades of your own wallet. You could really retain uh, choice regarding that um, and securities will settle in real time. I might post Ethereum and be looking to trade the latest hot DeFi token because uh, I think it's going to appreciate 10x in the next six months. Um, and Uniswap really enables that through this, you know, uh, permissionless uh, engine. Uh, it's a matching engine. It's uh, a pretty unique formula they maintain to maintain ba- balances. Uh, but really, the way to think about it is as an, as an automated market maker. So market makers exist all the time. You don't really know what's behind them. The code, once again, for Uniswap is fully out there for anyone uh, to reference to check what's behind it. Um, and you have the ability to trade in the long tail of two thousand 
most people don't know, but there's a thousand plus tokens that exist. Anyone can create a token. Um, some are tethered to real world assets. Some are not. They're digital only. Um, and Uniswap just, you know, allows you to trade in and out of tokens pretty seamlessly. The UI UX is really clean. I uh, don't have to interact with an order book. Like all that is obfuscated. Um, and it's a lot of what we talk about and why DeFi has taken off recently is the UI UX has gotten a lot better. Uniswap is uh, one of the flag bearers that's moving this effort forward. Um, and it's just become, it's actually, you know, better, not just safer finance, but it's becoming better finance. Uh, most users prefer it. Uh, the Uniswap trading volume over the last month actually exceeded that of Coinbase. Um, so a testament to the fact that people are paying attention and, and like it better. Yeah, amazing. I think one of the things that you reference frequently um, and we've observed directly is just the shift in the participants in the space. And again, DeFi sort of emerged as a derivative of what was happening in the blockchain and then in the token space. Uh, and in the 2013 time frame when we were making our first investments, um, it would have been quite easy to um, have characterized the participants broadly in the space as being um, quite diverse uh, from a background perspective. A lot of the dialogue was happening embedded in Reddit <laughs> uh, by engineers and software. It's a highly, highly technical space. Yep. Um, when you would go to meetups, you would get a certain profile of people. I think one of the things we started to notice um, two to three years ago when, you know, around the time frame that the DeFi meetups started in New York City was uh, the caliber and backgrounds of the people coming into this space. You would go to a meetup and you would see 50 to 100 people who were you know two cohorts one sort of 25 to maybe 35 the other sort of 50 plus or minus and a lot of them coming out of institutional finance um, algorithmic trading environments data science places like two sigma bridgewater goldman um, and so this shift in talent into the space has been really distinctive over over the last couple of years no definitely i think you know Part of why we weren't investing in the 2017 to 18 time period, I would say there was a lot of unique uh, personalities entering the space. I think a lot of people thought they didn't need institutional capital, that they could just build this, release their token, and it would work. I think we've learned a lot over the past three years. I would say the most smart entrepreneurs in this space really want the opinions of institutional investors. They understand that coding these smart contracts is really hard. It's actually more akin to coding software, uh, coding hardware than it is software. When you make a mistake, it's really costly. You've seen hacks of, not hacks, I don't want to use the term hacks because the underlying protocol has never been hacked, but fundamental flaws in system design that has cost people have put money into some of these protocols a lot. Um, and a result of that, I would say, uh, people understand to sort of take their time and build the system design right and want thought partners that understand what works and what doesn't. Um, uh, but yes, the, to your point, that the teams are highly technical. If you could code in, you know, in Solidity on top of Ethereum, you're kind of the superstar. It's the, uh, you know, the corollary is in traditional mark, in traditional venture. If you're the AI engineer, you could be getting paid a million dollars a year. It's the same thing in sort of the DeFi world. If yeah. you're the smart contract engineer, you could yeah. command that type of salary. Um, 
but you know some to your point have experience in institutional markets um, there's also some which is the fun part that have never been exposed to traditional finance system which kind of they come out with these harebrained but ideas but are extremely sophisticated extremely. in their thinking and understanding around markets and what stimulates activity and um, the whole space of liquidity farming and incentivizing behavior that ultimately uh, helps to distribute value out to the market participants. Um, we have had the benefit of, of spending time with just some incredibly genius level people. And I think a lot of the, you know, I don't want to paint a bad brush on, you know, what the participation was over the 2015 to 2018 timeframe. It's an extremely um, creative space, a um, highly moving at an incredible velocity, highly technical with what, you know, a technical term, a shit ton of money flowing into it. So I think a lot of what we saw was was quite understandable at the time. And I think looking back, we feel quite comfortable that we were quite conservative from an allocation perspective. Yeah. Um, shifting gears a little bit, we've we've hit on some things through this that suggests that um, appropriation of value, um, creation and maintenance of uh, what might more traditionally be thought of as enterprise value um, is or could could develop very, very differently in this space. Um, talk a little bit about what makes um, this space different from um, traditional, you know, preferred equity-based companies in the venture space. Absolutely. Um, I would say it definitely runs the gamut. The cool thing about the space is I think there can be appreciation in equity as well. Um, I think what you're really seeing, uh, especially in the last couple of years, is sort of this shift to tokens. Um, and tokens can mean a broad set of things. But when I talk about tokens, I really i am talking about the concept of a utility token or a token that gives you access to a particular network. Um, that access might have some, you know, that token may have some rights around governance. You could vote on proposals or upgrades to the smart contracts. Um, it usually uh, has some ideas notion of active participation, um, which is quite different than owning a normal equity share of maybe Apple. Like Technically, you do have a vote on uh, different governance proposals. Most people don't actually vote. You proxy your vote. Um, these systems, um, the tokens associated with them are, are evolving quite quick um, and require more active participation. But to your point of you know thinking about system design with that token, um, we're thinking about how to incentivize behavior in a whole new set of ways. Um, and you know, I get into arguments a lot with people, and for a while it became sort of the the blockchain, not Bitcoin thing. Like, let's take the token away, and like, let's just use the underlying infrastructure. And what people forgot, and why tokens are really winning out in the end of the day, is that token is really actually important to Bitcoin, right? It, it's what allows miners, or what incentivizes miners to, to give hash power to secure the network, right? Um, the, the, the tokens used to pay out people, right? And it's it's foundational in sort of the system design. If you strip it away, a lot of the security guarantees sort of fall, fall to the wayside, right? So especially in DeFi, we're seeing similar token desi uh, designs evolve. We're, we're pushing uh, 
the innovation cycle around them a bit more. You reference things like liquidity mining, which is actually giving users uh, a token or ownership in that network. Uh, that's quite innovative. Um, it's a way to sort of bootstrap early network effects. Um, so tokens, I would say, uh, don't make sense in all cases, but they're being proven out to being you know, quite a useful conduit when used correctly, right? So we spent a lot of time thinking about you know, does this system need a token? And if so, how to design it properly, not just for today, but how do we incentivize participation into the future? Um, so that's quite novel in around this. I would say, you know, valuation uh, methodologies are evolving quite quickly. Um, thinking about, you know, a lot of these tokens have governance and allow you to sort of vote on a percentage of value accrual within the network system to be attributed back to holders of that token. So actually, it's not that different from doing sort of a PV of cash flows in your traditional equity security. Um, so a lot of people are moving the ball forward uh, quite swiftly on thinking about valuation frameworks around the space. Uh, it really, you know, a lot of it is idiosyncratic to the system design. Um, so you can't really take a broad uh, approach to tokens in general. Um, we kind of dig quite deeply into the token design specifically of, of the network. Sean, so much to so much to unpack here, and I feel like we've put a bookmark uh, bookmark list together of things to to come back to. Um, we haven't hit on regulation and yep. uh, both the importance that regulation will play, but also the evolution that you'll have to see um, in. Um, in the DeFi space as you start to think about a program programmable system of finance and transactions and counterparties that has no respect for time, hour of the day, or necessarily geog uh, geography. And um, so that's a big topic. Um, I think it's super interesting to think through the role that stablecoins uh, will play. Um, there is a whole field of uh, law that needs to develop around uh, this space. Um, there are a lot of different uh, actors that are going to come to the space, from liquidity farmers to people designing the protocols and the networks to people who are staking to people who are voting. Um, and some, I think one of the um, things that is so exciting for us is that as we look into these incumbent financial institutions and see the processes and the structures and the systems of monetization, and we're investing in companies that are really rewiring some of that, when you get to the DeFi space, it feels like you're sort of looking 20 years ahead. Um, and the scale of what's possible in this space is um, is pretty incredible from from that perspective. Uh, final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, one one thing we didn't touch on that I feel quite strongly about is most of what we talked about is sort of the rewiring of money and the working of systems in developed markets. One of the things that we you know think on a thirty year plus horizon, and even imminently actually, um, is DeFi really could serve as a beacon of hope in emerging markets and. We think about 1.7 billion people who are unbanked, 4 billion who are underbanked. And, you know, once again, zooming out, 35% of individuals in the world uh, live under an authoritarian regime or somewhere where inflation exceeds 10%. Like, that's no way to live. Uh, cryptocurrencies could definitively, you know, serve as a better store of value for these individuals. Um, so I think DeFi, you know, just 
banking the unbanked um, is, is a problem set that, you know, we feel quite strongly about, I think, uh, will definitely be a use case for, for cryptocurrencies in not just the near future, but, but 30 years plus down the road. Awesome. Well, Sean, uh, I can't wait to um, see what, what's next. <laughs> um, we've got a handful of positions under our DeFi strategy um, in the current fund, and we're increasing our focus on that as, as we move forward. So um, thanks a ton. Thanks for having me in the booth. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time. Until next time.